Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 61. Today we'll be talking with Judith Glazer, organizational anthropologist and author of Conversational Intelligence, a book having profound effect on organizational creativity and productivity in the workplace. Judith is an expert in organizational communications and developed the concept of conversational intelligence. She has been named one of the Leadership Excellence's top 20 thought leaders and quoted and interviewed by all major media and business journals. Judith has written seven books, and her latest book, Conversational Intelligence, How Great Leaders Build Trust and Get Extraordinary Results, is the center point of our conversation today. Good morning, Judith. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. This is so exciting for me. It's great to have you on the show today. Judith, you've written a number of books over the years aligned with leadership and communications, and I was wondering what series of events brought you to the creation of Conversational Intelligence Framework and the book? It may sound incredible when I'm going to tell you what the story is, and I'll shorten it because it's a lifetime story. I got involved in conversations and studying them when I was 11 years old. And the short story is, for some reason, I had this sensitivity for patterns. I was very mathematical at the time when I was very young. And I also picked up engagement patterns, meaning when people are talking with each other, what's going on. And so I started to read some medical books very early in my life to find answers And fast forward, all of my education was around psychology, linguistic, science, anthropology, you know, all those kinds of things. I became an interdisciplinary student, always exploring, and maybe it's monofocusing. I don't know what if that's a real word, but I was obsessed with understanding what happens when people have conversations because when I was little, I could feel the difference when I was talking in certain families, like even my own, which I felt was a very driving, telling-oriented family with a lot less listening and a lot less compassion for each other. I would run away and go to people's homes and feel physically shifted. And I wanted to know what that was. And I talked to everybody about it. I asked if other people had these feelings. And on and on, it ended up getting me a fellowship in human behavior and development and corporate and political communication. So fortunately, the education that I had fed my ability to develop this into a science now, which in this book called Conversational Intelligence, it's a book that was rejected over 100 times by publishers because they couldn't see where people would pick up a book on leadership and have a lot of science in it and feel that it was accessible. And so I never got those contracts, but today I'm being called by those people that rejected me saying, what's your next book? So I guess conversational intelligence has found its footprint in the world. Thank goodness. And I'm getting to see the beautiful flowering of companies and leaders that are using the principles inside of this wonderful methodology. Congratulations. And everybody benefits in this round. Yeah, for sure. Drilling down a little bit, tell us more about what your findings and what your research has derived. What's actually going on in the brain during a conversation between, let's say, two business associates that just met? Mm -hmm. So if it's the first meeting, there are certain questions that come up in our mind when we're meeting new people. 
First of all, can I trust this person? Trust is something that our body seeks in 0.07 seconds. We want to know if somebody is trustworthy because if they are, then another part of our brain is going to open up that allows us to engage with these people at a very deep, meaningful, exciting way. And that is the prefrontal cortex and heart that are reading for, can I trust this person? If that doesn't happen and we start to feel distrust from a person, again, in 0.07 seconds, our brain and the lower part of our brain called the amygdala and the primitive brain, they are censoring or screening for signals from this person that they're not to be trusted. And so every conversation we're going through, can I trust this person? Will they like me? Will they share things with me so that I'm inside of their head and know what's going on for them? Can I trust them to share ideas that they'll not share with others? So that is one of the most important, powerful parts of our brain that help protect us, by the way, in a good way from people who are not trustworthy and also help us then find the people that are. So much of our reflexes are based on trust. It seems the importance in a business culture, you know, how to develop that and maintain it. Any thoughts there? How to develop it and then how to maintain it. They're really two different things. So let's do one at a time. It's important for a leader to understand that how they show up in the world is going to influence the people that they work for. So if you're a leader and you have a team of people and you are not trusting those people, that message is going to be communicated in a variety of different ways to the people that report up to you. And it's going to be harder for you as a leader to get the best out of people. And the reason I say that is the part of our brain, which has the most creative ideas, which enables us to challenge the world and come up with new theories and be intuitive and have empathy for other people, that part of our brain is very sensitive. That's the part called the prefrontal cortex. And so it's really important to understand what kind of things impact the opening of different parts of the brain and closing if we're a leader, because we literally set the stage, we set the table by what we're thinking, and we project that out into the room. And for the best type of relationships, leaders need to know how to invite trust into the room. They need to know how to build relationships, what to do first, what to do second. And if you'd like, I can share some of those things with you. Would that be helpful? Of course. Yeah, please do. So it turns out that people, first of all, when they're transparent with each other about something that's personal or interpersonal, it sends a green flag to the brain that says, I can trust this person. And the reason the brain likes that is that sometimes we step up to the plate with others and we quickly talk about our awards and how strong we are and how smart we are. We try to communicate that we're a person of value. But interestingly enough, that causes more distrust than we realize. What causes trust to occur in a relationship are people being transparent with each other about who they are and what their aspirations are and maybe some challenges that they've had in their life. So it's the getting to know another person, putting relationship before business, starting to activate our sense that I can trust this person chemically creates a whole different platform for the future success of the relationship and also the business that these people are trying to do together. So there's a movie called Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah. And you've seen that where there's like two parts of the story and if she goes into one part of the train or subway, whatever it was, something happens there. And if she goes into the other one, something different happens. That's how crisp and clear this story of trust and distrust is. Depending on which door you go in, And the kind of questions that you ask and how you get to know people, on one end, 
can turn on and open up an amazing relationship and amazing business. And then the other door I'm saying is the cortisol door where you start to send red flags that you care more about yourself than the other person, that you're out to get some secrets and not really be friends, but really steal things. When we pick up that sensitivity, it's a whole different story about what that relationship could be. And it's a whole different outcome about what's possible. But since our brain is so good at jumping to conclusions, what about when we're trying with our best intentions not to portray that behavior? We're not trying to trick people or or have malintent, but -hmm. sometimes we're just projecting the wrong things. What are the kinds of habits and problems that we have there? Well, for projecting things and we don't know it, there's a thing in our brain called the third eye. It's essentially the ability to track for each of us what our intention is when we're interacting with people and what the impact is. And it turns out that a lot of people that have difficulty with the trust arena, it's because they understand the first part, but they don't understand the second part, meaning they track their intentions, but they don't track the impact that it's having when they have conversations. And so the first thing that I like to do with companies and with individuals that I work with is ask them to take a look at how they're building trust with others and what they're saying and doing in those early conversations that actually can establish a fear around them. And usually people say it has something to do with someone that shows up a little narcissistic, self-serving, self-promoting, that all of that starts to feel fake and gets in the way of good connections and healthy connections. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, leading with the focus on the other person can go a long way versus what your needs are and wants are broadcasting those up front. Yep, exactly. Exactly. People love to be liked and to have people make entrees of warmth. There's a place in the brain that when we feel warm, things goes off because it's warm. It gives us that signal of warm. And there's conversations that actually trigger that same part of the brain, that warm part where it says, I'm going to open up to you because I trust you. And there's a cold part of the brain. And that's when we hear those things, like you were saying, that serving my own interest instead of theirs first really creates that cold feeling and it gets marked in our brain. It gets translated into, I can't trust this person. So knowing the difference between warm and cold, knowing the difference between trust and distrust and what kind of behaviors or conversational rituals that we can establish in our company, if it's a company or in our being, just as a human being, it can make all the difference like the sliding doors. It can make all the difference in the world to what outcomes that you end up with, with that person. And so Judith, give us a simple definition of what you call conversational intelligence. First of all, conversational intelligence is actually hardwired into every human being and can become activated as early as when a baby is in a womb being created. Wait wait a minute. Before I'm even out into the world, I'm already predetermined. (laughs) Um, Well, it actually has two parts to it. One is that 50% of our genes are going to predetermine who we are. And those 50% have more to do with things like our body shape and the fact that we have all our organs functioning and that we maybe pick up some of the characteristics that are genetically being passed through us that are from where we're from. Like if we're from India, you know, we have a certain look. If we're from China, we have a certain look. All those things are prescribed. And along with that comes some of the things that are being passed along from your parents and their generations before certain characteristics. However, what's so amazing is that we now learn from people that are in the field of genetics and epigenetics, and epigenetics are how our genes change us, that discipline has discovered in the last 10 years that the other 50% of our genes are actually very different from the first 50%. The second 50% are called transcription genes, 
and that means the word transcribe, and it means that these genes are encoded to be activated by the environment. That means that they're like levers that you can push and turn on or turn off certain characteristics. And these characteristics can be everything from how warm we're going to be as human beings. A lot of things has to do with conversations, how we show up, our character. It's kind of like in the old conversation about nature and nurture, that nature is the first 50% of the genes. It's what our nature is. And then the other 50% is nurture and how we nurture each other through conversation in the back room is actually turning on and turning off genes, which bring out the kind of character that we are. So let me give you an example. Inside of our womb, the mother is actually having conversations with the baby. Now, again, that may be startling, but at the level of chemicals, if the mother is in a feel-good place and they want their baby to feel good and they can have that carried throughout the whole pregnancy, their baby is going to come out with a very beautiful nature of feeling good about the world. An example, my niece wanted to get pregnant. For 12 years, she wasn't able to get pregnant, and she thought that that may not be in her life future. And then all of a sudden, she got pregnant, and she was in such great joy that all the time, every day, she was thinking she would rub her belly and say, oh, thank goodness, I'm so happy. And those happy hormones were coming from her into the baby, turning on and off parts of that baby's nature as they were going to appear in the world. And the baby was called Alana. And when the baby was born, first of all, she had longer hair and looked like she was older. Secondly, she had a smile on her face, which normally doesn't come until a baby is three months old. So what was happening is the conversation between Javi and Alana was actually turning on genes for a huge amount of appreciation of the world, being happier. And actually, the baby grew up faster inside the womb. So when she came out, she appeared to be like an older child. And the doctors were amazed. This child still is one of the happiest smiley kids we've ever seen. So that's an example of genes being turned on, even in the environment of being during pregnancy. This is amazing, obviously, to think about that. And we know there's a lot of studies that have been done looking at what's happening to how embryos develop from a neurobiological standpoint. And this is just another one to add to the books. Mm -hmm. And it seems like if you're armed with this kind of knowledge, the question is now, what do you do about that? Yeah. And we talk about in conversational intelligence, what happens at the moment of contact? Because if it's true, which I do believe that every moment of contact registers in our brain, and actually we have a memory of these interactions with others, it absolutely changes the direction of how conversations can go. Let me drill down a little bit more because I think your audience is going to be excited by this. Certainly I was when I learned it. Every time we meet another person, we capture the patterns of interaction and they're stored in a place in the brain where that person lives inside of us. So imagine that I could create a dot in my brain, and every time I interact with either of you, the pattern that we have as our interaction gets stored in the memory of that particular part of our brain that has your name on it. Now, you must say to me, like, how do you know that? Isn't that like woo-woo stuff? And <laughs> is that really possible for us to do? It turns out that a bunch of studies were done. And one example, which I thought was so clever, there was a guy, they put the headsets on to do the fMRI reading of his brain. And as they were talking to him, they mentioned a lot of questions. And they knew that this guy liked Jodie Foster. And so they would, <laughs> they'd put the, the Jodie Foster question in periodically, but he didn't know that that was happening. And every time they mentioned Jodie Foster, the same place in his brain lit up. What a great experiment. Every time they did it afterwards, once you start to find out which people are important, 
and then use that in your inquiry during fMRIs, you can see a place on your brain somewhere probably in the hippocampus, which is where we store a lot of detailed memories and patterns of everything we're doing, but that pops up. And so if we think about what are the implications for business, that if these patterns of interaction get stored, then let's say I'm going to have a meeting with one of you, Craig or Shai or or anybody, but I have now known you a little bit. I have a memory of you. I have a place stored in my brain. The next time I come to meet you, I will have precognitively be thinking about how you're going to appear for me in that conversation. And if I have a number of bad experiences, unfortunately, the brain has been trained to save those cortisol experiences for a longer time, and they have a greater influence on how I might feel about you. So I prime my brain automatically by thinking about going to this meeting and what it's going to be about, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And I come in with a precognitive feeling that I may not trust you, even if you're trustworthy. If I've had some bad experiences, albeit I've named them bad and they really weren't, but that's what's going on in our brain. So I want to toss it back to you and say, you know, what does this have to do? What are the things we need to think about? You know, what would be, what would you want me to share with leaders about this? Because it's so profound. It's something that 100% of the population has and does. You know, what do we need to learn as a society now? You know, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about this for business owners. Well, one of the books I read in the past had an insight as far as relationships with fellow workers. And one of them was, is that, like you're saying, there's a sort of database going on in your head. And it's a bit subconscious in that whenever we have dialogue with another person, we come away from that dialogue either with a more positive or a more negative net result of that feeling of that person or of our relationship. Mm-hmm. It rarely is the same. Does that come out in your research too? It's exactly what this research shows. Yeah, it comes out different each time. However, because our brains are so designed to be pattern sensitive and weighing emotional experiences in a chemical way. So if my experiences with you produce more cortisol, it's going to be mapped in my brain that that's what's happening. And it puts me in a a different mindset the next time I see you. I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to look for signals of trust, you know, those kinds of things. And I may share less as a result of it. I withhold because what we know is like sharing money with people. That's what we've been trained to think. And that's what our experiences have taught us. So if I am afraid that you're going to be an enemy of mine or steal my ideas, and that's the feeling I have about you, whether it's true or not, I'm certainly going to be withholding. And that can amplify the negativity and produce more cortisol. So you're absolutely right that everything gets stored. It may be a little distorted, especially in the direction of fear that somebody's going to steal what we have because that's the way everybody has worked in the world for millions of years. And we're now at a time in our history where we're able to examine like we are today, what these patterns are and begin to learn how we as a turning point society can actually start to shift our understanding or learn how to deal better with the fear part so that we can build more trusting relationships because that's what enables human beings to thrive One piece of data I will share with you is that we've studied, and I've read other studies as well, human beings who can move themselves into that positive state and engage with trust with people, it actually extends their shelf life as a human being in case you want to live longer. Cultivating those types of relationships that are trusting, surrounding yourself with them will extend your ability to live in a healthy life with less cognitive difficulties, with a greater sense of immersion in the world. Kind of a beautiful story and a true story. Sounds like a a worthy investment also. For sure. 
I think there's a choice about how you want to show up. I think so many of us are just trapped in our own pattern and behaviors and we're on autopilot and we don't even realize we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's one of the big things I take from this is we don't realize the power that we actually have to foster better outcomes just within our own interactions and how we show up and the kinds of words we use and the choices we make. So, for example, when you're having one-on-one conversations with folks, especially in the workplace, it's productive to ask them about their family, how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And in thinking of your example, a lot of business owners aren't really wired that way, right? Because they want to cut to the chase. They want to know the bottom line. They want to know whatever KPI they associate with that person. Perfect. And, yes. and so sometimes it's not coming across as genuine when they're asking about what's going on in their family, even though they may really care about the person. But taking a step back using your Jody Foster example, if you know what other people's Jody Fosters are, well, guess what? It could be their spouse. It could be their child is Mm -hmm. the person that lights up their brain. So just taking that moment to ask about them, you're activating a part of their brain that's going to put them in in a good space. In a beautiful space, yes. And what kind of pathways does that open up? That opens up the trust pathways. If people start to ask me questions about my family and check in and see how I'm doing, it produces more oxytocin. And if you could imagine a scale with oxytocin on one side and cortisol on the other side, if somebody starts out a conversation checking in with me, how are things going? Anything new in your life? Oh, how is so-and-so? I remember you told me that story. It produces a beautiful flood of oxytocin, which sends the chemical message to the brain. Oh, wow, this is somebody who cares about me oh my goodness, this is somebody who I can trust. And immediately it moves you into that space where you could share more, discover more. And lo and behold, the owner of the business who actually wants to get more out of that employee will get more out of that because the employee says, wow, he cares about me or she cares about me. And so they feel connected to the business in a very sticky way, if you could think about what that word means, in a very warm and connected way. So leaders knowing this, it's so important. It really is. And Judith, you know, in part two of your book, you talk about raising your conversational intelligence. And specifically, you talk about blind spots. Could you share a little bit of that with us? Well, we have different kinds of blind spots, and each one of them plays out in influencing what we actually feel and hear and find in a relationship. So we have five major blind spots, understanding them and learning how to move around them and make them not blind spots in the future is so important and powerful. So a little story, one of the blind spots that I have is the assumption that we remember what others say when we actually remember what we think about what others say. So we listen to people. And there's an assumption that we remember what they're saying to us. But we remember the story we tell ourselves about what they said. Exactly. And I was doing a piece of work with NASA and we had 20 people in the room and we were talking about these blind spots. And one guy shared something that was very personal to him. It was the first time he had ever shared it with people. And before the meeting was over, he shared with us that he was feeling really horrible and uncomfortable that he had shared that. And we said, why? And he said, because you're going to take what I just said and you may hold it against me and it makes me vulnerable and it makes me weary. And he went through all the distrust things. And I said, well, let's check in for a second. Let's just ask the people that you were talking with in the room, a couple people, what do you remember about that? And every person did the same thing. They said, what you said triggered an insight in them. And so what they came away with was a new insight and they completely forgot what you said. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that powerful? That's huge. 
It's huge. And the guy said, oh, my God, for my whole life, I've been afraid because people distrusted him a lot that I've been afraid to go into engagement and around certain conversations thinking that people would remember it. It might be something personal. It might be where he was vulnerable. And he said, you're just teaching me that this is just the opposite, that my sharing of something and being vulnerable actually helped another person understand something about them better and that they projected back onto me gratitude for that. And he said, I didn't even know that that kind of cycle existed in my conversations. He said, he said, you've taken this weight off my back. That's amazing, this disconnect between the business environment and culture, possibly, and Mm -hmm. the human side of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've dealt with a lot of companies around the world. Imagine you've come into situations where there's just a multitude of things going on when you walk in the door. Anything you can share with us? Well, there are a couple companies that I've worked with over the 35 years that I've been in business, and some of them have been profound and left a big imprint on me. So I would love to talk a little bit about this company called New Wave, NWE, New Wave Entertainment. And when I first started to work with them, I have seven books, as you mentioned, and in two other books before a current one, Conversational Intelligence, and I believe they're in all three of those books, which were bestsellers. The first time I wrote about them, I changed the name of the company because they were still going through a major transformation as we were working together. But now I'm able to brag about them and share them with the name of the company. So New of Entertainment is in the entertainment business there in Hollywood. And at the time I met them, they were a $15 million business with somewhere around 60 to 80 employees. And I was brought in to meet them and to work with them as a consultant first, because I found out that the three owners had lots of disagreements and arguments about how to grow the business past 15 million. And so they were stuck in a non-growth period while the leaders were trying to figure it out. And I came in, my job was to unlock them, to enable them to have better conversations, to enable them to have and create the ability to see into the future and see where their greatest talents could be utilized and to use that insight to help them build other divisions within their own company. And I have to say, and I'm going to give you the end game first, and then we can talk about in between what happened. New Wave was $15 million in size. Within three years, they grew to a $250 million company. It became so big that they had to move out of their other location and moved into a huge building that could hold their growth capacity. In addition, they picked up clients. They used to have only Disney as their major client. They picked up Paramount and all of the production houses that we all know of that make movies. But at that time, there were seven different companies, and they ended up getting business from all of them. That's what created their big growth spurt. And what I did with them was to work with them on conversational intelligence. For them, it was like the magic potion that they all drank, and all of a sudden, everything started to shift in their company. So one of the things that enabled the extraordinary growth spurt that took place in this company was that I had to work on with them how people were talking to each other. What were the conversations? And I remember doing the research and I said, like, what were they arguing about? And I'd hear things like they were arguing about whose spot in the parking lot they could have because there were prestigious spots and there were non-prestigious spots and everybody wanted the prestigious. So you could actually see how powerful ego was down to every little thing that they did. So I wanted to neutralize their conversations. I wanted to help them shift their conversations so that there would be a healthy way of talking about their business growth. And so they decided that they would have a meeting with the top 21 people and that we were going to really tackle this. So I put together a beautiful roadmap and agenda 
and came in prepared to help them talk through all the different dynamics of their business together and how they could elevate it to higher levels. When I walked in the room and I started to feel the energy of the people, I felt, oh my God, this is going to be a horrible meeting. People are angry and upset. I can feel it because I had interviewed them and there were a lot of people that said, we're never going to grow. We have to change our leadership before we end up figure out how to grow. And I had to tackle those preconceived notions. And I was kind of struck by some kind of lightning. And I remember going over to the flip chart. I still see the picture in my head of what I was doing. And out of my thinking somewhere intuitively became a picture of an arc. It's kind of like in a car where you have a speedometer. This is a half an arc. And on the left side was the word resistor. And on the right side was the word co-creator. And in between resistor and co-creator were things like it was resistor, skeptic, uncertain or neutral, experimenter, and co-creator. And what my mind really painted in front of me was the steps that people go through to move from pushing back on each other and resisting each other to moving over and starting to discover together and experiment. And I spelled the word experiment with experimenter, M-E-N-T-O-R, which is the mentor of an experiment. And I was given this kind of, in my mind, some picture of what I needed to do with this. And I turned around, I said to the 21 people, as we start our meeting, I'd love us to all identify where we are in our state of thinking about the meeting or where we are and how we want to participate. Something that gives us all a chance to know where each other is standing relative to others. And I turned around, I said, could you please anybody just tell me where you sit on this arc, on this dashboard? And I remember waiting for over a minute and I was looking at people's faces and I could see everyone kind of going through this. Their faces turned white. They looked down. They didn't want to be first. You know, it's like, a, how do you create breakthrough in a difficult situation? And finally, one guy raised his hand and he said, I just have to tell you, we've done this before. We've had three consultants come in. It's never ended in anything good. I am in high resistor. I just don't understand why we have to keep wasting our money and doing these things over and over again because they don't work. And my comment back was pivotal. My comment back was, wow, thank you so much for giving us insight into where you're standing and helping us understand what's gotten in the way in the past. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know that your colleagues are going to appreciate understanding how to understand you better and what are the challenges that you're facing in this culture. And you could see the color of his face change. It's kind of his arms relaxed, his whole body got comfortable. And he said, well, I'm glad this was helpful. And then all of a sudden, other hands started to come up. And in a short time, most of the people in the room identified where they were. And in all cases, I gave gratitude to them because it's hard to open up with difficult conversations. Well, this is the moment of reckoning for this company. What they did is they shifted from the fear and cortisol that were in their bodies to moving over into raising the oxytocin, which is what helps people bond and naturally open up to each other and talk about things that are important and get into what we call level three conversations, which are how do we co-create together? How do we take our company from where it is to a better place? What are the things we need to look at? And at the end of this session, we had two days, the team had generated 50 flip charts that told the story of where they were as a leadership team and where they wanted to go. They brought the flip charts back to their company. This was their idea. And because it's a very visual phenomenon. New Wave Entertainment is in film business. And so pictures mean a lot to them. And they put these pictures up on their walls. And they asked the employees in the company to put ideas down on these idea sheets so that they could figure out how and where they wanted to grow. And I can tell you, this is the most catalytic, most profound exercise that I've ever done with any clients. The end result 
is that they went from 15 million to 250 million. They birthed seven divisions. They hired extraordinary people. Some of you have seen Forrest Gump and you remember that feather in the beginning. Do you remember the opening sure. scene? Sure. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, they did that. And many, many more like that. The creativity that was oozing out of that company. So it went from the competitive edge to the creative edge and the co-creative edge. And the production companies used to sign up to come in and take a tour and see how to create environments like that. Because to go from 15 million to 250 million in three years is almost an impossible wish. Yet they accomplished it. I continue to talk about them and write about them because they were willing to try out some things. These are conversational rituals to try them out, enable them in their company, and then watch. It's like planting seeds and watering it beautifully with the right nourishment. And they grow. Their people in the organization grew. Just spectacular. They had a waiting list of 50 to 100 people always. It's just an amazing company, an amazing story. Judith, I really appreciate that insight to some of your experiences there. What are some of the actions a business owner could take this week while they're waiting for their book to arrive? There are a couple of things that they can be doing, and each one adds value to their ability to better understand their culture and to help influence elevating the healthy conversational intelligence behaviors in their organization. We have to, as a leader, start noticing patterns. So I would suggest that leaders get a journal and go in and observe and experience being with different parts of the company and different people, and then taking the time to write down some of the patterns you're seeing. A lot of times leaders jump in if they see something they don't like. We are are all judges by nature, and we start making stories up about who's friends with whom and who's trying to get who and what things aren't working. I would ask leaders to hold off on making those judgments, but observing the interaction dynamics and what people are using pull energy. Pull is asking questions. It's being curious. It's discovering. Where do you see patterns of great discovery happening? Where do you see patterns of people telling each other what to do all the time and kind of preempting other people's thinking about how they can contribute. Just watching the pull and push energies is one pattern they can look for. And as a result of that, you start to see why things happen in a company the way they do. And you as a leader can start thinking about how to influence those patterns that are not successful for people, not by judging people and calling them out and telling them in front of their peers that this is a horrible thing to do. We don't want to see that in conversation, and we don't in conversationally intelligent companies and leaders, but we see people trying to influence by modeling great behavior. So this will give clues to a leader. It's number one for them to be a better observer and a recorder of patterns. I would also like to share an exercise, which is in the book, by the way. It's one of the many in the chapter about how to influence through conversational intelligence, how to create your culture. This is a fun one for leaders to do. And that is, I ask you to put a circle on a piece of paper and put 12 spokes like a clock around the circle and ask a team of people to individually come up with what they think success means to them. So each person has a circle, has the success in the middle, and then it has 12 spokes. And after each person does that exercise individually, ask them to get together with a team of people, seven people or something like that. You could have it happen throughout the company, depending on how many people are in the company. The key is in sharing and discovering what they wrote down for what success means, they have to see how many words they have in common. So literally, for me, success in a company means good relationships. For somebody else, people would say that people listen to me. Somebody else might say we make a lot of money. Um, Whatever those things are, share and compare. It's often an amazing experience because 
I've done this with companies in a room with hundreds of people, people that have been working together for years, asking them to do this exercise. And just out of curiosity, let's say you had that room of 250 people. How many people at a table of seven or how many tables do you think might find lots of words in common? What might your guess be? Lots of words or little words in common for what success means? I would think lots of words. Yeah, I would too. I did. I went into this exercise years ago saying, oh, I'd love to find companies that have lots of words in common and see if they could talk about why that they have quality relationships and, and how it is that they're building to success and they're doing it really well. I have found in almost 100% of the companies in that particular situation, we only had one table, one word in common. Incredible. So it's incredible. And now they had a way to understand why people were in conflict about where to put their energy. They weren't having those conversations. They weren't sharing and discovering. They were doing. And so, like you said in the beginning, sometimes we get into this move fast, doing behaviors. We rush to get into action. That means that we're going to be successful because we're doing, doing, doing. And what conversational intelligence is teaching us is let's get in front of the curve and make sure that what we're doing are the right things. So let's start to talk about what success looks like, Let's start to build our picture together so we're standing under the same view of what success looks like for all of us. It's not my success battling your success. It's our success being joint success. And all of a sudden, you have a beautiful way of beginning to influence people's behaviors in the way they communicate with each other, how they support each other, and how much they trust each other. So it would be a wonderful exercise to share. That's really great. Judith, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I have had an awful lot of fun going back and forth with you about some of the things that are so important. Certainly in my world, I'm, I'm so mono-focused on helping companies and individuals elevate their conversational intelligence because it does miraculously have a huge and positive impact on how your future is unfolding with people that you know and with people that you're yet to meet. So if there are people that would like to know more about conversational intelligence and actually dive into, in particular, part two in the book, and the book is called Conversational Intelligence, How Great Leaders Build Trust and Get Extraordinary Results. This particular chapter is full. It's called Raising Your Conversational Intelligence. It's full of wonderful exercises and things that you can do with yourself, you can do with others, you can do with teams, even throughout whole organizations. So the website is the name of the book, conversationalintelligence.com. It's available at Amazon and other bookstores in people's local neighborhoods. It has great insight and wisdom and will add value to any organization, especially when leaders have a desire to elevate the ability for people to work well together and to produce extraordinary results and productivity in their business. So Craig and Chai, I appreciate the time that you've given me to share things that are going on in my world and the clients that I've worked with and the amazing results that seem to come when people are willing to step into the ring and learn a little bit more about what it means to be conversationally intelligent, because when they do, their life will change for the better, one conversation at a time. Our guest today has been Judith Glazer, author of Conversational Intelligence and thought leader in driving organizational communications to new levels of clarity and productivity. You can learn more about Judith, along with links to additional information, in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Align for Business at Aligned, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.